Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman and AJ Cooley. And uh, today we are going to continue a conversation that we began a couple of episodes ago uh, where we are looking at kind of the Christian and secular belief systems, uh, looked at kind of the new American religion, secularism being the new American religion. Last week we looked at habitus, uh, this process of being socially formed and how critical it is to understand our context, the water that we're swimming in from a formative standpoint, that often this happens, not often, I think for all of us, this happens at a subconscious level, Drew, is the point that you were making, that uh, most of us don't consciously uh, select our belief system, but we are the products of our context, the products of our environment, the product, products of our upbringing and our social environment. And uh, we're going to dig a little deeper into this. I think we we alluded to kind of a T-chart that Drew and I have in our minds comparing and contrasting the secular belief system with the Christian or Judeo-Christian belief system. And we'll take a crack at that today. We've got a couple of different, I think, Drew, uh, you have uh, one version of that in your mind, and I think I have another version of that in my mind, and so we'll mash that up today and see where we get. This might be fodder for future conversations as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, why are we passionate about this, Drew? I mean, this is really the crux of our, our entire yeah. podcast. Yeah, let me start by, if I had to give a very basic overview, the secular gospel teaches us to live true to ourselves and not hurt anyone else. The Christian gospel is die to yourself and find new life in Christ. So right there, there, there is a contrast between two different belief systems. And um, for me, the passion, you know, going to your question, Mick, is that every one of us has been formed by the secular gospel in some way. I don't think it's possible to be living in contemporary America and not have that be a significant part of your formation process. And so if I were to unpack the layers of what I mean by that, you know, live true to yourself, don't hurt anyone else, there are some implicit assumptions. You know, I think actually that gospel message, you can hear it. If you listen for it, I mean, media, it's all over the place. Like, it's a very prevalent message. But if you, if you drill in a little bit, what, what's behind it? What's the, the salvation story, so to speak, that it tells? And it starts by saying that at the core, you are an innocent and pure individual person. And social systems in this world have oppressed your inherent goodness, and that could be at the family level or at the societal level, by forcing you to conform to someone else's standards for who you're supposed to be. So this... Um, other identity, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the right, you know, the, this false sense of who you're supposed to be has been placed upon you, and that then has held you back from realizing this pure, innocent self that you started with. And for those of us, or for those of you who've listened to us over the past couple of seasons, we talked about Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he really uh, kind of tracks the evolution of the development of this particular idea. Uh, going all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke and the tabula rasa, this idea that we are a blank slate, uh, an innate goodness, which makes sense logically if if you take God out of the equation, then we are just kind of a the, the you know the the blind uh, product of random chance, and so you eliminate this notion of good and evil, and yet we observe evil in the world, and so where does that come from? And so the idea is that it's imposed on us from these corrupt systems uh, from the outside in, not from the inside out. So what happens is these social systems, they now suppress who you really are, and they leave you with a sense of guilt. 
And so this is the problem that must be overcome. And so many of the negative outcomes in your life, or if you were to extrapolate that, the social systems that we all live within, they are problematic because of this very fact. And so they hold us back. Salvation in this scheme occurs when you remove those limitations and get back to who you really are. Now, for many or most people, you know, I think we can draw to the extreme examples of sexuality or even gender identity. But for many other people, most people, I would say, really this message is internalized related to your unique personality and maybe your career. And you're kind of trying to discover who am I? Where do I fit? What's the lane that I'm meant to run in where I can live this fulfilling life? Now, for some people, then it goes on to um, those other sexuality, gender, your religious identity even your family responsibilities. You know, any one of these things in your life, your faith, your family, anything could potentially be a false limitation that's keeping you from realizing your true self. Most people don't go to that extreme, but I would argue most people do internalize that message to some extent. And so that then is the gospel message. The goal, salvation, when you have arrived is when you are self-actualized, when you have lived out of this true self and your life reflects your true identity of who you really are, and you're the only one in the world who is able to know who that is. Nobody else can tell you that. And that represents some key disconnections, actually, where in the past, uh, people got their identity mainly by connection with externalities. So all the way back to kind of the Greco-Roman world, um, you got your identity from your connection to the polis, your connection to your city-state. And then, uh, you know, within kind of the religious context, you got your connection or your identity through your connection with the church. Or in an economic world, you got your identity through your connection with productivity and business. Or uh, really throughout history, uh, culturally, most people got their sense of identity through their connection with their families and their tribe. But I think what we're seeing today is that we've been disconnected from all of these externalities. They're seen, just reiterating what you just said, Drew, they're seen actually as an imposition on the development of my true self. And I must detach from all of those things, which originally or historically gave me some sense of grounding, some sense of identity or participation in something bigger than myself. And now salvation is the detachment from those uh, those entities that demand something of me to conform to something external and to realize who I am uh, at, just at a psychological level from the inside out is seen as a, a source of salvation. Is that fair? Is that uh, along the lines of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware, we're probably the first society, you know, maybe the last 50 years where this has been our understanding of our identity. You can go back in time and you can find philosophers who quote, but as far as this being realized in a society as a whole, most of human history and still today, most of the world, their understanding of identity is derived. So I start with either my religious or my social or communal identity, and then from that, I discover my personal identity. And oftentimes, there's many layers to that. And we've we've changed the equation to where it's not derived anymore. In fact, all of those things are options available to me but none of them are defining of me. And I should, and this would be a moral imperative, I should have the freedom to choose which of those things fit who I really am and be able to self-actualize within that system. The key idea is that if I can get in touch with who I really am and have the freedom to live according to who I am, then I'm going to find freedom in life and thriving. So I'm returning back to where I was, which is this pure, innocent self, and I'm living out of that self, and now I have this rich, fulfilling life. So if you chart it, there really is a salvation message in it. That's why I refer to this as the secular gospel. 
It's live true to yourself. So you were pure and innocent. Sin, quote unquote, in the system is not something within you, but it's something within social systems. You find your salvation as those barriers are removed. They return you into a place of salvation, to use the Christian terminology, which is you living according to yourself in a way that enables you to thrive. And I, I want to be fair to it. I do think there is a moral system that's mm -hmm. associated with it that I cannot hurt somebody else. And hurting somebody else is both actively doing things to hurt you, but it's also anything I would do to get in the way of you living that same. So th this is the sense of fairness and justice we have of if I'm living according to my true self, then who am I to come alongside of you, Mick, and tell you what that is for you? So I'll, I'll use an example of Christian sexual ethics. Somebody might look at me and say, hey, that, that's great, Drew, that that works for you, that you living this way of uh, monogamy in marriage, it's just you and your wife, one man, one woman, and that's what you've chosen. So nobody has a problem with that. The problem would be, what right do you have to live this fulfilling life that way when somebody else has an alternative to that that they want to live, whether that's hetero or homosexual or something else? How, who am I to say that you can't live? You're, you have a thriving life. Why can't they? And, and you could extrapolate that to a lot of other different types of issues. So that's the secular gospel. Let me, let me flip over to the Christian gospel. At the core, you are a warped and flawed person who is also dearly loved and created in God's image. Now, I would argue, and obviously I'm a, this is hometown, you know, this is my belief system. I would argue this actually places greater value and honor on the individual person, because what I'm saying is that the God of all the universe created you on purpose and placed value upon you. So you're not just a product of chance, blindly in the world trying to make meaning for yourself. You were actually put here for a reason, for a purpose, and the divine imprint is on your life. I mean, that, that's an incredible privilege and honor and dignity. And at the same time, there's something wrong with you. There's a sickness at the core of who you are, and it goes to the very bottom of your humanity. And I think this is important from the Christian perspective. We've dis differentiated in the past between total and utter depravity. Utter depravity is there's nothing good in you, and I don't believe that. I don't believe somebody that's created in the image of God, that the image of God can be so thoroughly removed where it cannot be seen anymore. And I don't think that's a biblical thought. But I do believe in total depravity. And what that means is that there's no part of you that's left untainted by sin. So wherever you see love, goodness, and all these other virtues, there's also sin in there somewhere. And it doesn't mean there's not goodness that's going to come forth from your life. It just means that there's going to be this taint of sin and the kicker is you don't know where one begins and the other ends. Like we are not able to, to even fully have a right view of ourself. And so even though we see incredible richness and beauty in the world, it's always tainted. And in the end, it always collapses. It doesn't ever fully arrive. And that's the problem of sin. So therefore, because of that, your salvation has to come from outside of you. I would argue that sin is both individual and it's social. So it's not one or the other. It's not to say that my sin is just within me, but society as a whole is neutral. But also, contra the secular gospel, it's not to say that, that my sin is only in society, but not within me. Mm -hmm. And I actually think we would have hope if it could just be one or the other. If it was just the individual, then we could have great systems that save us. And if it was just the society, then, uh, then we could, as individuals, fix the society. But when it's both, we're kind of trapped, and especially when we can never see the limitations of our sin. So our salvation had to come from outside of us. It's not something I find within myself as it is within the secular gospel, but the Christian gospel is telling me myself is the problem. So my salvation has to come from elsewhere. And of course, we know that in, in, in our faith, God became man, 
And through his life, death, burial, resurrection, he makes the way for us to engage in a new humanity. Um, if you read patristic theology, which is you know, the first five, 600 years of the church, there was an incredible emphasis on the incarnation and this idea that what Jesus has not assumed, he has not saved. And what they mean by that is he became human in the full sense of the term, except for sin, and therefore he has saved humanity in the full sense of the term, that now we become part of a new humanity. We are recreated. We are born again, a new way of being human, and it's there that we find life. I think central to the Christian faith is death and resurrection. So I have to die to myself in order to be resurrection into that new life. And this is where there is an incredible divergence with the secular gospel, because one is telling me that I live true to myself, that there's nothing actually wrong with me. What's wrong is everything else that's been placed upon me. The other is telling me there's something very wrong with me. And the only way I'm saved is actually by dying to that thing, that sense of self, and then being resurrected into a new life. Uh, you know, two very different gospels, and I don't think they can be reconciled. Yeah, an interesting uh, study in history would be a comparing and contrasting of Augustine's confessions with Rousseau's confessions. Augustine writing, what, in the 4th century, 5th century, uh, Rousseau writing, I believe, in the 17th, 18th century. And uh, in Augustine's confessions, both of them have a story of stealing, I believe, as a piece of fruit in both of their cases, a pear for one and something for the other. And in Augustine's Confessions, he talks about the the, the brokenness of sin um, inside of him that led him through the temptation of theft to, to steal this fruit. In Rousseau's Confessions, he talks about a similar situation, but he cites all of these external factors of um, the, the poverty that was rampant in society and uh, expectations of his father and all these other things. Instead of pointing the finger inward, he points the finger outward. And I think that's a, a great compare and contrast. Again, Rousseau, who was a proponent of kind of returning back to nature, one of the romantics, that uh, if we can just get away from society and all these corrupting influences, then the, the purity of, of who we are fundamentally will, will be brought to bear in the world. Uh, and, uh, and contrasting that, like you said, with the patristic writings that had a, a, a very uh, clear sense of the brokenness of humanity. I want to point out here, even though my emphasis is on dying with Christ as part of the Christian gospel, it's not to say that there's not an incredibly rich, thriving life that comes from it. It's just what we're claiming is that you don't get to that thriving life apart from being crucified with Christ and resurrected into the newness of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so it's not to say that that a thriving, rich, hope-filled life is not the goal. In fact, I think any great Christian writer, I mean, read Christian mystics, read scripture, all of it is talking about this beautiful, joy-filled life. And in our faith, it's both eternal and it's present. It's eternity made realized in the present, and not to say that there's not going to be suffering. And that's the other um, richness of the Christian faith is the depth of, of what we have to help us to endure and persevere in times of trial. But at the same time, there is also a promise of a richness of life, and there's countless Christians who mm -hmm. testify to finding that, but the way into it is through being crucified with Christ. Right. And so right there, I think for any of us, myself included, we're confronted with this thing. Do we believe that we will have life by living true to ourselves, and that's our ticket? Or do we believe that we will have life by dying to ourselves and finding our, our life in Christ? I don't believe you can have both of them. Mm -hmm. I think there are ways of synthesizing. I think there can be some truth. I, I don't want to draw too hard a line as far as 
you know, me discovering the uniqueness and the things that I enjoy doing and my personality types and all that, that can all be very helpful. And I think it is, there is something to be said for, I hope your career matches your passions. I understand that for most people, you know, I, I could go down the list of where you understanding yourself and the things that are unique about you. And there's beauty to that. And I could say that God created that. So there is a helpful aspect of that thought. However, if you remove the centrality of the cross of Christ and the resurrected life, and you try to overlay all that, I could dress up in a lot of great Christian terminology, the secular gospel, which is that my problem is somebody else or something else, and my solution is I need to live true to myself, and there's never that invitation to take up my cross and follow Christ. And at the end of the day, that is not the Christian gospel message. And so which one does actually lead to our salvation? Which one does lead us into thriving life? That's the question that we have to ask for ourselves. And the challenge on the flip side as well is if I embrace the secular gospel, I can actually incorporate the Christian gospel and go to church and do all the things, you know, and, and the word there is syncretism where I'm blending two religious systems. And so I, I, I doubt there's many, many of us listening where we've made the conscious choice to adopt the secular gospel, but I would imagine all of us have syncretized at some level where we're trying to have both at the same time. And, and that's what I'm trying to focus on in a, in a really specific way of recognizing which gospel message at the core do we actually live within. Yeah, maybe an, uh, another way to say a couple of the things you just said. One, we don't get to the thriving life. Um, we don't get to the the promise of hope and everything else if we don't right, rightly diagnose the problem. And if the problem is internal as well as external, and we deny the fact that we have a problem, uh, then we're going to short-circuit the healing process, um, the, the Christian gospel, that we have to look to something outside of the self in order to save the self. And when it comes to identity, if we're made in the image of God, then we will never fully get to know ourselves if we don't get to know God. This idea of, um, I, I can't fully know myself. I can't fully self-actualize in the best sense of that word, step into who I was created to be if I'm cut off from the source of my existence. And the one who dreamt me up before the beginning of time, if I was an intentional um, act of his will uh, and I don't get to know him, of course, this is all based in a, in a Christian belief system that we are, that we derive our existence from someone or something outside of ourselves. Uh, but it's not a vain pursuit, of course, to get to know who we are and how you're, like you're saying, Drew, how we contribute to society. Uh, but it's secondary to, um, be, to getting right with God and dealing with that internal bentness and that, that uh, bent in on the self uh, that is uh, because of the taint of sin. secularism in the end, its gospel promises this thriving life, but I don't believe it delivers on that promise. Why is it that the more our society converts to secularism, that more people are depressed you know, on a statistical level? I mean, in, in a shocking sense, you know, double-digit increases on an annual basis. Why are more people lonely? Once again, shocking statistics. In fact, I, I can't cite this because I saw it on social media and I did a little digging. Somebody can go look it up. But uh, I saw somebody, a statistician, did a deep dive on loneliness rates, and they were looking, and what they noticed is that it is a distinctly, uh, this kind of, uh, if you've seen these charts, it's just up and to the right, you know, crazy increase. And it's a distinct problem, though, that is in the United States, and even more specific among U.S. young adults. 
Like that's where this is at its worst. There are people, and they differentiated between people who are alone, but they're not lonely. You know, as people age, um, sometimes that can be the case, you know, but they're not lonely per se, mm -hmm. but they were looking at people that are lonely, people who they're involuntarily alone. And they looked at global rates. And so a lot of the answers, social media, smartphones, things like that, that we would suggest as the cause of the problem, that doesn't really hold because why would we not see those same trends in other parts of the world, Africa, Asia, where they have just as many smartphones and, and a younger population? Why are they not lonely, but we are? Obviously, that's going to be a very complicated answer, but I have to believe that part of that, it ties right to our individualistic belief system that I'm better off living true to myself, which necessarily puts me at some kind of tension with any kind of community that I have, you end up alone. And I just don't believe, I don't believe that secularism is able to deliver on what it promises. And what makes me so sad, and this is a lot of my passion and really what got me into this <laughs> at one level, is I kept seeing people and it's like, this is the very thing that's making you sick. So let's just drink a little more poison and try to get better. Mm -hmm. And it's, okay, my life is dissatisfying and it must just be, I have to keep removing more and more layers. And Maybe the first thing I removed was my evangelical upbringing, and then I had to remove my full Christian upbringing, and now I have to actually remove my family and all, you know, just you keep peeling back identity layers because surely one of those layers is the problem. The people I've seen that do that end up more depressed, more alone, more isolated. It, secularism isn't saving in the way that people want it to. And I'm not saying that everyone who's secular has a terrible life. Obviously, there's plenty of people who do, and there's there's Christians who have a very hard life. So you know, we need to be fair um, in our analysis of that. But if I were to, to look at a macro level, what, what I see is that the more our society converts to secularism, the more it's incapable of delivering on the life that it actually promises. And I've seen enough to say that it's not working, mm -hmm. uh, even on a, not even an eternal level, just here in the present, it's not working, it's not leading people into life. And again, if it's based on disconnections, uh, disconnecting from the things that used to give us a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, so that we can... Uh, allow our true selves to flower, then I, I think it's it should be uh, it should not come as a surprise that loneliness is the the result of that. Actually, did you know that uh, the UK appointed a minister of loneliness? Sounds like a terrible job title. <laughs> uh, the loneliness minister. This is a real thing. I think it was 2017, 2018. Diana Barron or Baron. I don't know how you pronounce her last name. Uh, she is Britain's loneliness minister because they've identified loneliness as an epidemic in Britain and uh, millions of people who deal with that chronic sense of loneliness. So they're they're trying to deal with it at a political level. It's it's reached uh, kind of ec epidemic proportions in the UK. Yeah, you talk about disconnection. So it's like, okay, Mick, do you feel dissatisfied in life? Your solution is you need more freedom to live true to yourself. So let's dismantle all the aspects of your life that provide anchoring and meaning so that you can create recreate yourself however you want. Like, just think about that logically, like all the different aspects of your life that help make you stable and anchor you into something and then provide identity and meaning to you. I'm going to systematically take those away from you so that you have this tyrannical freedom to just be whoever you want. And, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't work very well mm -hmm. when that happens. Instead, what's going to happen is you might be free, but you'll also be alone. You'll be isolated. You'll be, you'll be craving an identity and you're not going to be able to find it because you're on this forever quest. I just, I, it doesn't work, you know, and, and I think we could look at our modern, modern society, especially in the United States, maybe Britain. It's a giant experiment where we're thinking that our identity is entirely derived from ourself. It's not something we get from our culture and we're going to remove our culture so that we can create it for ourselves. It's an experiment in human history. And, you know, we're all lab rats and I just don't think it's working very well. So here's the challenge is we could critique all day long the problems with it. 
But if you are living within a belief system, and anyone who, if you're a perceptive listener, what we talked about last week, really the last two weeks, when you live within a belief system, you actually can't think outside of that belief system. So I think that's the problem that a lot of people are in is they've bought into this belief system. It's not that they're satisfied with it, but they're not capable of transcending it. And so what do you do in that scenario? What you have to do is you have to come across a community that actually lives differently. There's a great book. Andy Crouch wrote a book called Culture Making, and I really appreciate his book. And what he's describing in this is he's essentially pointing out that cultural critique will never change anything. I can't complain. You know, I could complain about secularism all day long, but if I can't give you a more compelling alternative, nothing is going to change in secularism other than you might be angry about it. And he he tells this, I, I think it's a brilliant illustration to describe his point, where he in his family, he, he describes, you know, and I, I remember I read it at the time when I had young kids who are picky eaters. So he's describing he has two children and they're picky eaters. And he and his wife, you know, I, what did he say? It's something to the effect of fifth generation, like they just love chili in their family. That's what their family does is they eat chili. But his kids don't like chili. And so every time they serve chili, there's a little bit of an argument. You know, they're critiquing. They're mad. They don't like it. But what he says is what they don't realize is that we're going to stick with it long enough. They're being formed in this culture. And in the end, they're going to learn to like chili. And remember, if you remember me talking, I think it was last week, about taste. Taste is formed in you by your cultural mm-hmm. context. So taste is being formed into these children. They're going to like children or chili, and then they're going to pass it on to their children. So they are these unwitting um, conveyors of culture of something that in the present they don't like, but in the future they will transmit to future generations. Kind of like your girls and your boy with uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, the, it's a lot more rewarding. Yeah, it's you get Super Bowls <laughs> out of that deal. Oh, sure. But they they did, you know, they, they do this. And so he, did, he goes, it's really humorous. He's describing all the things they could do and argue and everything. But he's like, in the end, it's not going to matter. You know, everything we know about sociology, it's just not going to matter. They're going to end up liking children, chili, and they're going to end up passing it on. However, he said there is one way that they could break the cycle. And what he said is if they wanted to change things, then when they're old enough, they could research recipes of other food on the internet. They could go to the store. And when we came home for work, if my kids had made dinner, and if that dinner tasted better than chili, they could actually change the whole course of the family not by complaining or critiquing, but by creating. And that's the, the title of his book, Culture Making. And he really goes on to talk about cultural artifacts like art, music, things like that, and the importance of Christians engaging in that. So it's a great book if you're an artist. But the point to me, and he, I don't know that he really draws this out in the way that I would like, is I think that actually starts by literally creating a community. We create a culture, not the artifacts of mm-hmm. a culture, but the culture itself in the church. And so what ends up happening is as long as I'm in the secular world, I can critique it all day long, but it's like chili. This is what's being forced to me. I can't live without it. And so in the end, I'm going to be a transmitter of it. And it's tasty. Uh, I, everybody wants to be at the center of their world. It's a, that's a difficult um, uh, narrative to counteract. Yeah, it's if like you, fast food, right? It's like empty carbs. something compelling, yeah. Yeah, it sounds good. In the moment, it satisfies you. I, actually, fast food is probably the best equivalent of it is in the moment, if if – you know, you're hungry and you just want to get some carbs in really fast. It's cheap. It'll fill you up. But in the end, it's going to hurt you. You're not going to be very healthy and it's not going to leave you satisfied. I think that's actually the right way of understanding it. So what do we have to do? We have to create a compelling alternative. And in our case, we're not creating something, but we're standing on something much older than secularism that um, has been around a lot longer and is um, demonstrated viability and resiliency in a variety of different cultures and economic 
um, positions and all, all types of things, eras of human history. So we're not even really creating anything. We're just rediscovering something and we're living within this compelling alternative community that is the church that's based on different presuppositions. And, and next week we'll outline a bit more what we mean by all of that. But you know, if I step back from it, this is part of why I'm so passionate about doing this. And you know, as we shared at the end of last season, we're praying through this summer. Okay, what's next for ideology? Why do we do this? You know, the time both you and I have plenty of other stuff we can do. And we got into some of this in in our um, our initial episode of this season. But I'll, I'll state it again. You know, I was overseas this summer um, working with a lot of international missionaries, and different ones are sharing about their cultures. And you know, I'm hearing them share about what does it look like to see a gospel witness in these places. And somewhere in that, it just dawned on me, just as if I was in India or China or somewhere else, you know, I'd have to be thinking missiologically. We need to be thinking that way in the United States. In fact, maybe our situation's harder than a lot of other countries because we have a culturally Christian country that's converting to secularism. And I don't see a lot of great answers to it. I don't think the church is going to die off. And I'm skeptical a lot of these doomsday statisticians, you know, the, the percentage of born again or evangelical Christians has held pretty steady for 40 years. And it's, there's not, you know, any serious decline there. But what is happening is it's becoming marginalized. It's weakening. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not growing. And so how do we missionally understand our own culture? So I see people trapped in secularism. I don't think it's working. I think they're suffering. I, I don't think they're living this rich, full life. And I'm just burdened. I'm like, how do, how do we as the church tell a better story? How do, how do we incarnate a better way of living? I think that's an urgent task for us. And that's mm -hmm. so much of why I want to do this podcast is what, what are vehicles for us to share that message, help people with that, motivate people, because it is, it's an important hour of us learning how to be an alternative community that presents a genuine, different way of living. And it's not going to be something that I just communicate. I mean, that's why my day job is church, and so is yours. It's for that reason. Ultimately, we have to live it. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to talk about it. But then in the course of living it, I also think it's helpful to talk about it because we're creating a better alternative. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great reflection because I could anticipate a lot of the critiques or the rebuttals out there among maybe some of our listeners. And, and I think it would be very justified to point out the fact that we talk about the church as this alternative community. However, I think a lot of people's experiences within the church has has not been a reflection of this compelling alternative community that's better than Chile, so to speak, that would uh, that would compel someone to convert, as it were, from secularism. Uh, and there's a tremendous allure, you know, within uh, secular ideology. All, all this talk of tolerance and love and uh, if you don't peer underneath the surface and and just kind of take it at face value, that uh, actually it, it borrows from uh, Judeo-Christian thinking, which is a conversation for another time. Uh, but on the surface, it can be more appealing than uh, maybe a lot of people's experience within the, the context of the church. And, you know, we're not going to sit here and explain away all those experiences. And I think we just, in pastoral ministry, we have wept with people who've had just tremendously painful experiences within the context of the church, uh, because the church is filled with people who are in, in the process of formation, the process of sanctification, and people hurt people, or hurting people hurt people. Uh, and yet, I think we would argue that the uh, the syncretism that has crept into the church and the process that 
uh, people are undergoing as they're being sanctified is behind the challenges that we face in creating that compelling community. But just because that's the case doesn't mean we abandon the project altogether. And and, uh, as we look at the scriptures, we see this as Jesus's mission that will be fulfilled. His prayer in John 17, for the oneness in the body of Christ. Um, I believe if Jesus asked for it, that it, it will come to pass. And so I, I believe we're on the winning team, and I would, I would admonish you if you are sitting out there and you've experienced tremendous pain within the context of church and, and in community with other believers uh, to seek healing, to uh, meet with God in a real way, to deal with that disappointment, or even that, that pain, that trauma. Um, but I would invite you back to risk again and to uh, jump back into biblical community, to be part of the answer, part of, uh, part of contributing towards a vibrant, unified uh, body of Christ. It's not easy, um, but I, I do believe it's the, uh, the calling, the destiny of the people of God to uh, link arms and figure this out together. An analogy that helps me with that is um, family. So just thinking of literal family, most people out there are going to have stories of family hurt. Just like if you've been in church long enough, you're going to have a church hurt story. The faulty assumption that we make is that by removing the family, I will have less hurt. I would argue by removing the family, you will cause infinitely greater damage than you would have otherwise, even though the family itself is always going to be a flawed institution. And the challenge is there are some families that are dysfunctional enough where you have to take extreme measure, just like there are some churches where there is enough dysfunction where, you know, you read it on the internet and you're like, wow, that's shocking. And it does happen, you know, just like it does in the family system. But this is where we need to have a little more nuance, I think, to our thinking. So, you know, if, if you've been hurt by your family, man, I have so much um, grace and empathy and compassion. And it's deeply painful. I mean, we've, I can't tell you how many people we've walked with where their whole life is marked by walking that through with them. Very few of them have told me they'd be better off without a family. Most of them acknowledge that the good that came from their family outweighs the pain they've had to work through. It's just what they're saying is let's learn how to do this better where there's less pain. There are a few, you know, there are a few, just like there's are a few people where their church experience was so damaging where, yeah, they, they probably would have been. And that's that's the nuance to the to the conversation that we have to always work through. But for every one shocking story of a dysfunctional family, there's hundreds more that are ordinary, flawed, parts of it are painful, but a, a great good that imparts identity, security, and so much else that are just needed for human thriving. And so I, I think of those two as analogous illustrations. I think part of the reason why church hurt is probably only paralleled by family hurt is mm-hmm. both of those are meant to impart identity, provide stability, and a place of connection. And so when you come across somebody's brokenness in that, it's going to be deeply damaging to you. And the damage is because it's such a powerful thing. It's meant to impart identity and stability and a whole lot of other things that you need. And so it's, it's, when it's warped, yeah, it's going to hurt you. But the solution is not to take it away. The solution is to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I, I find with a lot of people, you know, when you're in your 20s, you get in touch with where your actual family failed you. Uh, but then what tends to happen is when you get into your 30s and if you, God blesses you with your own children and, you know, and then you get into your 40s and 50s, you start to realize, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> if I could just live up to my parents, I'd be happy. You yeah. know, it, it's just over time, you get a lot more... Yeah, you just get a lot more grace of recognizing we're flawed people, mm-hmm. but we're better together. We're better to work this out together, and we don't want to lose sight of this compelling vision for what could be. And we also have to have a lot more grace for recognizing we're probably going to hurt each other in the process. Mm-hmm. So I, I recognize there are extreme examples on a bell curve, and that's, I'm sure, some of you listening. So please only hear grace 
in my voice for your situations. But what we don't want to do is allow those shocking examples to keep us from contending for maybe the majority experience, which would be a flawed yet vitally important place of human connection, which yeah. is the church and the family. Yeah, and actually in keeping with the theme of disconnection within the kind of the secular belief system, I was just looking up, I, I had read a story a couple of years ago about this kind of phenomenon of children divorcing their parents. You talked about it being uh, you know, an, a, among a very uh, few amount of people, but that actually is a growing phenomenon. Yeah. And the the laws, do you know the name of the laws when no. children, they're called emancipation laws. Oh my gosh. For children to be emancipated from their uh, yeah. slave master overlords uh, and their parents. Uh, but yes, it's not to minimize. There is like yeah, said, some people need tremendous yeah. pain, and there there needs to be legal proceedings. Uh, yet, I think that can be extended a, a bit too far um, to just completely disconnect from that sense of identity and belonging because of uh, challenges along the way. Um, that might be a good place to pause for today, Drew. Yeah, here's here's one thing that I would love it um, that you know all of all of you listening could help us with. Part of the reason why we added YouTube and Instagram. Um, is really not at all because we like looking at ourselves on screens. Um, <laughs> I, I looked at our first episode. I was like, "Wow, I'm more awkward than I thought I was." You know, um, but what and we this hair, or this light makes my hair look snow white. At least uh, it looks like you have. When it. I look at my hair in the mirror, I still see brown hair, and then I see videos and photography and, know, it's, and uh, it's video. A terrible thing. <laughs> and all I see is just snow white hair, premature graying. I know. You look is great, what it Nick. is. You Thank look you. great. Well, likewise, true. Well. But what we can do and what we would love to invite you guys to help us with is the reason we're doing YouTube is it is the number one social media site and it's a lot more easily searchable. So my dream and hope and prayer would be as people are grappling with this and they're looking to the internet, I would love to make our podcast findable for them. And and so if somebody's just wrestling with all these type of questions, I mean, what a testimony if they could stumble across and our resources could be helpful. So if you're able to subscribe, even if you prefer the podcast, but you don't mind subscribing um, on YouTube and just anything we can do to help generate that because what those algorithms eventually kick in is they make it easier for someone who's um, searching terms or, um, you know, kind of the up next features. And then the reason we did Instagram is um, that way our content is more easily shareable. So if you follow us on Instagram, we do um, a couple different things. We'll, we'll do just little snippets that are, are maybe teasers of the content that I hope would provoke somebody to listen to the episode. And it's, I, I've, I'm, I have this love-hate relationship that borders more on the hate than the love with social media. Part of it is it's so easy to misinterpret a conversation. So that's why I've resisted doing this for so long. But I think what can happen is if we can put little quotations out there that would clue somebody into the type of content, and then if it does provoke something in them, hopefully lead them to, to look up. And I'm, I'm willing to take the risk these days of if somebody is provoked and they go listen to what we have to say and then start to interact with it, um, that's worth it to me. Um, recognizing somebody else may take it and just kind of, you know, run with it in a different direction. So we'll try it. It's an experiment. But um, where you can help us out there is if you found something that was helpful to share it. And what it does is it gets it out there in people who uh, I know just even in my own so social circles, I don't, you know, at this point in my life, um, who knows who follows me on what um, people that I've lost contact with. And we just never know who's wrestling. And at a moment, I I've even been surprised just through the word of mouth growth of ideology thus far, people who I had no idea even knew where I lived or what I did have, have stumbled across it in some way. So we're trying to accelerate that to uh, identify people who are wrestling with these questions of secularism. So if you do find something helpful, it'd be great if you go ahead and share it, try to get it out to more mm -hmm. people. Um, what else we're adding to social media is 
we are going to drop in quotes and graphics. So, you know, the, the different T-charts or, you know, whatever other things. We had a quote from Athanasius last week. You know, things like that. We'll post that as well. So um, it's things you might just want to hold on to. And we're going to experiment even some with YouTube of dropping in some graphics from time to time to, to make it a little easier to track with what we're saying. I know for me, uh, some of these thoughts can be complicated. It can be helpful to just have, have some reinforcement for what it's trying to say. And then I do promise on a at least... I think we can almost commit to a weekly basis. All the stupid stuff that I say um, and the bloopers that don't always make it into the podcast, um, that is one of my favorite things to post. It, it, it really could turn into a blooper account by the end. Well, we're actually doing pretty well with the, the pressure of video and not wanting AJ to have to edit it a whole lot. Normally, before the video process, gosh, our- the dirty, Are you going to tell the dirty secret of ideology? Yeah. I mean, normally we're sitting here kind of uh, making this up on the fly, not making it up, but putting it together on the fly. Uh, lots of editing in the past, but we've done some one-take uh, cuts here these last couple episodes. I know. It's, it is intimidating. Yeah. I, I, for, for those who have not sat in the room with us, there's many times I've gone on like a two-minute rant and then at the end looked at Mick, looked at you and said, um, why don't you just cut that whole thing? It yes, doesn't sound we'll good. We don't like it. But so far, we're what, third video episode in? Right. I haven't said anything that dumb yet. Uh, well, the listeners can disagree, but... <laughs> It's from my vantage point. You can be our judge. Uh, well, I would add one thing. Uh, the tone of this podcast is intentionally um, dialogical. Um, we are. Uh, we know the algorithms really favor uh, combative, divisive, binary thinking, and we could work those algorithms, but we're intentionally trying to build bridges. Uh, so uh, our content is already not favorable towards. Uh, you know, being of a viral nature. So it really does require listener participation. If you find this helpful, feel free to share it, just echoing what you just said, Drew. So with that, um, you can reach out to us. We've been getting uh, emails even this week. Thanks so much for those who've reached out with encouragements or things that have been helpful for you or um, suggestions at ideologypc, sorry, ideologypc at gmail.com. And then YouTube and, and Instagram is at ideologypc. The PC, again, not for political correctness. Uh, it's not our uh, telos, our end goal in life, but podcast. So that's so what it is. Thanks for tuning in and we will catch you next time on Ideology. Ideology. <laughs> we'll catch you next time on that was, Ideology. That was a blooper. If we were editing, I would have done the outro again. We'll catch you next week on Ideology. <laughs> you ever notice how there's no audiobooks with somebody with a Texas accent? You know, yeah, it's seriously. like get your British friend to do it, but not your Texan friend to do it.